The keystone to success is the ability to adapt to change. Don't moan and groan. Don't waste your days thinking you can't do anything. You can. Hello and welcome to the School of Hard Knocks, a new six-part series brought to you by EG Property Podcasts. I'm Sam McClary and I'll be your host for this series, which will bring you six in-depth interviews with key individuals from across the UK commercial real estate industry. Over the course of this series, we'll meet people who have lived through some of the highs and lows of this wonderful business of real estate. And through our conversations, we dig deep into the skills, the mindset, and the structures you need in place to successfully navigate tricky times. Originally designed as part of VG's Next Generation project to provide a tool for people in real estate who may have only worked during a period of low interest rates and high activity, what follows is a series of conversations I guarantee everyone will find helpful, inspiring, and dare I say it, even entertaining. Joining me as our first scholar in the School of Hard Knocks is Kevin McCabe, the Sheffield-born businessman who set up Scarborough Group, growing the company from zero to a £2 billion business. With decades of experience under his belt, Kevin tells us how his journey began with knowing what he didn't want to do, and how he grew a successful business by making sure he seized the opportunities that came his way, built trust with partners, made sure he knew all the ins and outs of the business, and was wise enough to know exactly when things started to feel too good to be true. I absolutely love this first conversation, and I know you will too. It teaches us about the importance of loyalty, trust, and respect, about knowing what you want and going for it, controlling the controllables and adapting, and of being confident that if you do all that, you will not fail. Things will change, but things will also get better. So sit back, get your pen and paper ready, because it's time to enrol yourself in the School of Hard Knocks. Listen hard and enjoy, because graduation promises a better grounding to navigate any of the knocks the economy may throw your way. And listen to the end to see who's up next in the Hard Knocks timetable, and why they think property is a little bit like heroin. Enjoy. Kevin McCabe, welcome to the EG Property Podcast and our little studio. It's not that little, actually, is it? It's quite quite big. It's cozy, another it, C. It's cozy. <laughs> well, um, just for listeners, uh, there was a ban on a certain C word, but not the not the cozy word. So we're we're here today to talk about you, about your life, and I'm going to pick your extensive brains for some lessons. I hope for um, some of our listeners. I was going to say some of our younger listeners, but maybe some of them. And more experience need those lessons as as well. Um, but before we get into that, I want to go back to the beginning. I wonder if you can tell us your your story from you know that first day that you um, became a surveyor to to now. How, where did it all start? And 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 talk us through the journey. It started with me at the age of sixteen making a decision. The decision being a, a sort of a, a South Yorkshire lad from Sheffield sort of in a working class background where you went into this probably the steel industry because that's what Sheffield was about in the 1960s so I had half a day in Samuel Osborne Steelworks half a day was the day I made a decision for the first time in my life as a 16 year old ain't for me however in that era this is this will be this will be gosh 1964 um, you couldn't not have a job 
I couldn't go back home and tell Ma and Pa I'd quit this job. So I walked from, uh, from the home in Sheffield to a building site about two miles away from home, which was a company called Ackroyd and Abbott, who were the contractor, building um, the new halls of the, the new Masonic halls for Sheffield. So it's about, say, a, a two-mile walk, and immediately got a job there, um, where always the guy in charge was called a general foreman. And it was a bit like a matron in a the hospital. They ruled the roost and anything and everything that happened on their site. So uh, they set me on, I think it was about £3.50 a week or something. <laughs> and it was one to sort of, uh, apart from making tea, doing a bit of moving um, planks, helping scaffolders uh, and the like. The general foreman, God bless him, a guy called Ted Schofield, had an immediate impact after about sort of a week of, of working on this building site and enjoying it, I may say. It was one of saying, lad, they need to get this end qualified. What they're doing, doing this. So Ted Schofield, God bless him, sort of put me on this one of thinking, well, I've got to get qualified. He's told me he's much more of a boss to be than my dad. So I went to uh, the Polytechnic to go one night a week to night school and took a correspondence course, which was purgatory, because I wasn't a great academic at school. You know, my sport, sport sort of showed me, t t took me through the school days and beyond. But um, I did this correspondence course. When I was courting my wife, because there, no, there were no cars in the family, so courting was really meeting her in town on t off bus. And no other women before your wife, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a you cheeky bugger. <laughs> it was one of uh, um, literally doing some reading correspondence course, and believe it or not, and I, I say I'm not an academic, never, never was, never have been, but I learnt quickly, and so um, bizarrely, I qualified at quite an early age. I think my last exams was when I was twenty, mm. and became a sort of a, an associate member of the Institute of Quantity Surveyors which in due course was merged with the RICS. So I'd actually done something. The in-between bit was when moving after two years working out on site to the offices of Ackroyd and Abbott. And that's what got me on the real road of a career that went from construction to property, always still with construction at heart. Mm. So you qualified at 20. Then you don't yeah. stay in Sheffield, you move up to Scotland. Ackroyd and Abbott, very progressive guy, uh, sorry, company. The, the, the son of the founder was a guy called Barry Abbott, and he was my real mentor. Didn't see him much, but I admired him. He was the go-getter. He was changing Ackroyd and Abbott from being an old-fashioned builder into a contractor and developer. Uh, so Ackroyd and Abbott were then taken over by Bovis. Gosh, I'd, I'm struggling for the, for the year. Uh, when the, um, Bovis took over, Barry Abbott moved down to London to be on the main board. So I lost contact directly with Barry Abbott, but the fact he was still there in London, I was in Sheffield, um, uh, you know, I enjoyed working for Ackroyd and Abbott that became Bovis. And within um, a few months of that, I was asked to move to Scotland for Bovis. They were opening a property office, not a construction office, property office, and they thought I'd be ideal to work with them at the property office, particularly because they'd got a joint venture uh, in Aberdeen with a company called Teasland Development Company mm. Limited to develop uh, 
the first speculative office block that Aberdeen had ever seen. So I actually then got back involved in project management, but at the same time was lear learning all about the commercial side of real estate. So having to meet with agents, whether it's for raising money, whether it's for um, tenants, um, seeing what they did for a living, like learning about leases, you know, which was different from sort of digging holes and build, putting up buildings. Um, so uh, I decided, yeah, went straight up, told my wife we'd been married sort of months, not years. Hey, we're up further north last <laughs> to Scotland. She'd got nothing to say other than, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> However then, uh, my mentor, Barry Abbott, all of a sudden uh, disappeared from, from Bovis. Must have had an argument, not unusual, so he quit. That made this young buck, who sort of, he was my mentor, a bit brassed off with Bovis. Goodness knows why again, but you know, things have an effect on one's life when you're younger. Mm. Um, the Teasland side of the joint venture said, Kevin, why don't you come and join us? To which I thought, fine. Teasland's uh, uh, chairman of Bleak Chief Executive was a guy called Martin Cohen, a lawyer by way of background. Martin was a good sportsman, particularly at a game at a game called squash. Okay, so that was an appeal because I was also in those days a pretty good squash player. So I joined Teasland. That meant I'm telling my wife we're going to live at Stockton, lass. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't even know where Stockton was. So it was a quick move from to live in Edinburgh to come down to uh, Teesside still to look after the project, I may say, in Aberdeen, amongst other matters. And that took us to live in, in, in Stockton. We lived above um, Squire Bancroft, which was a furniture store, uh, a fish and chippy below, and a newsagent below. Sounds perfect. It sounds perfect. Fish and chips every night. Didn't stop until 11 o'clock. And newsagents opened at 4.30. One bed flat. I mean, my wife must, must have loved me to put up with me. <laughs> And I say my wife had to go and get a job there. We weren't wealthy. Um, it took us about two years to sell the house in um, in Sheffield because we're in a time of recession. You know, these things in life that happen now and again. Mm. And uh, uh, when we did sell it, we then had a proper home in Teesside. And I worked merrily with uh, Teesland until the mid-70s. And then you set up on your own, your first company, with a £10,000 loan, which sounds like, well, it's quite, probably yeah. quite a lot back then, but now from £10,000 to £2 billion now is Scarborough? £2 billion what? Under, uh, £2 billion Pe of assets. Peanuts or? <laughs> Pounds. Oh, oh God. look, at the minute, can you value assets? If I can tell you how much acreage we've got <laughs> and the, the, the list of the projects, you can sort of stick figures on it. By But, you know, can you actually realise the high value we're in a rock and roll period at the minute you know yep. it's a, it's sort of turning forward to today as we reflect back on the era i came into real estate in and we're in a rock and roll period where so many things have gone wrong for the nation that's had a material effect on the real estate industry and therefore with it if there's a recession for a long time the construction industry yeah which um because of what's happened in the past you can live with it. You can adapt to a different circumstance that we're in today for our group as a property company. Yeah. We're lucky not to have uh, a huge amount of debt. We're lucky to have projects in 
great cities, Leeds, Manchester in particular, Sheffield, um, up north, across the border, just seven miles beyond Edinburgh. Um, and uh, we can sort of keep what we've got as projects, keep improving them in value, which includes development, uh, and sit and wait. All the time adapting the group, because we've got to find other ways of making money, whilst values sort of remain lowish, or demand remains lowish. And uh, so we're doing that, we're adapting. We're yeah. adapting, as I taught you now, the next meeting will be with colleagues, remind them what we've agreed and a timetable to achieve. Let's let's stay with that then and how and how you get to a place where you can um, sit here um, quite calmly, I suppose, and say, well, you know, two billion what? Uh, actually, it's about what we have and what we're able to, to do. And I imagine starting out, it, it probably wasn't quite so, not that it's... Um, without stress today but wasn't quite so light on stress when you were starting you out. mean when you borrow 10 grand when you borrow 10 yeah. grand and it feels like quite a lot of it, money uh, yeah look at it, it um with spending time in scotland scotland became the roots of scarborough group what became scarborough group seems odd now because obviously i'm a yorkshire lad and our headquarters are in yorkshire um but that's time i spent in scotland initially with uh, with bovis and then with teesland um, really is where I learned all about property. I learned how to sort of uh, work with an organisation that was well managed, um, Teesland, and with a, you know, an astute chairman, uh, and that had to also cope with things called uh, recession. Mm. And uh, before I left uh, Teesland, which was the mid 70s, 76, we just sort of were coming out then of a, of a major recession. I'd got my 10 grand. I knew I could actually have some money to pay myself. And a, it was a man and a dog uh, set up with um, uh, a small office in Scarborough with uh, a PA. It was a time where nothing like mobile phones. You had one call from a little chef or whatever back to the office, see what message had been left. It worked perfectly because we're all, all the same. Um, and it meant I was traveling freely, meeting agents, and from the word go, doing deals. Yes, 10,000 back in the early 70s is probably worth 100,000. So I could actually, I did two or three small schemes in Edinburgh, renovating properties in good locations, Albany Street, York Place, and whatever, which uh, sold on two or three to the St. Quintins and Stanley were the agents. Uh, I can't remember the name of their, their client, but sold those on. and made probably about £40,000 mm. per deal, which again setting up on your own was wow wasn't time to sort of celebrate with a bottle of shampoo it was having a cup of tea like <laughs> served me today <laughs> and the, it built the association the man at uh, at uh, bank of scotland where i got the money from was a guy called bill sison wonderful guy a bowler hat manager you know that that occurred in those days and bill was one of the senior managers uh, based at one of this big branches on george street edinburgh which was in spitting distance at the headquarters of the Mound in Edinburgh. And from Bill Sison, who sort of, uh, say it the pleasant ways, and took a liking to this young buck who'd formed his own company, um, um, he got me to meet the people who were up and coming in the bank, not right at the top. And one of the bank's subsidiaries is called British Linen Bank. 
whose headquarters, the original headquarters of British Linen Bank, which went, went back to the 16th century, were on Threadneedle Street, hmm. a property we ended up buying about ooh, 20 years later. Um, so via Bill, he introduced me to people in the bank who were involved in real estate at British Linen Bank. They ended up being a major funder for me. They ended up at one time in one of the companies taking a stake, an equity investment. So I began to learn so much more about not just the property, but the corporate side of property, dealing with financiers who wanted to sort of be charging me an interest rate based upon base rate or LIBOR, wonderful LIBOR, and a margin. So I, I was cutting my teeth quickly. I was so anxious to get money, and I'd got such faith in British Linden Bank, and it worked. We were a good team. Do you um, put those connections down to, to luck or to... Do you think you put yourself in the right place at the the right time? I can probably answer you now, you know, sort of <laughs> nearly 50 years later. I don't think it was luck. I think I got that uh, energy, desire. And, um, you know, as you get older, not not talking about my age now, but probably in your 40s, you've learned an awful lot. You've polished yourself up a wee bit. You can adapt to the organisation you're dealing with in a way where you will probably get your way. So I'd matured. Hmm. And I probably matured, um, maybe I'd matured earlier than a lot of other similar age guys because I started earlier. And I started in, you know, right at the bottom, so to speak. So I'd learnt a lot. I'd got more confident. I was unusual for a, a manager because I understood construction better than most. But that gave me a sense of... Uh, of pleasure and also being ahead of the pack. Hmm. And I employed some good people. Excellent, excellent. So now you're getting investment in your bi your businesses, you're building a portfolio. When does when does Scarborough come, al come along and the, the next phase of, of the development of the business? Um, that, at that time we're, we're active primarily in Scotland the only other schemes in the 70s uh, elsewhere was one in Whitby, which I'd nearly forgotten about, at Flowergate, <laughs> which effectively was building a supermarket for a company called Hinton's that ultimately became owned by um, Tesco. And we had um, a scheme, a small industrial scheme, at a place called Pity Me, which is close to Durham. Um, what, was was what was Pity Me like? It was a, Did you it pity was, anyone there? No, it's very nice, <laughs> quite nice. Yeah, it's near Durham, so it's uh, <laughs> it was easy to get to. Um, so, uh, and it was a scheme that went well. It was sort of building um, simple old warehouses for people who stored caravans and smaller sorts of business. So, um, but it really Scotland and. Uh, the contacts I'd made in, in Aberdeen, for example, which was becoming the real oil city. Um, and when I first went to Aberdeen on the joint venture between Teesland and Bovis, believe me, you know, the estate agent there was a company called uh, either Burness or Burnett's. And they old, in their office, it's the old sloping desks. <laughs> they really were old-fashioned. Everything changed dramatically within two or three years to become a switched-on city. The pace of growth in Aberdeen was great, so did quite a few small schemes there in some of the wonderful buildings, you know, the obviously listed buildings, but just off Union Street. 
that were simple um, uh, renovations to lease and then sell. And then did uh, shopping centre at Bridge of Don, which is one of the suburbs on the outskirts of Aberdeen. And from Aberdeen, then made contact with the Highlands, the Inverness region, which, oddly enough, it, I don't think my colleague Nick realised just how busy we used to be in the Highlands. On the strength, initially, of a company called William Lowe, hmm. who were, again, a supermarket operator... Ultimately, they became owned by Tesco down the track. That meant building... Have you got shares in Tesco? No. Should have had. I should have done, yeah. you're right. Yeah. What does Tesco stand for? I don't know. Tessa Cohen. Oh. The owner of Tesco was... I can't remember his Christian name, Cohen, but his wife was Tessa. Oh, there you go. It's a fact, fun fact. That's ten quid you owe me, gal. <laughs> okay. So if I win a pub quiz with that question, I'll, yeah. I'll give you 20. <laughs> So we end up building, again, supermarkets. I teamed up with a company called Tullock, Tullock Construction, who were really a builder and um, funeral directors. You know, they made coffins. They were based in, uh, in Nairn, and I built up a great association with their FD, a guy called David uh, um, Sutherland, who I spoke to only last week because he's a similar age to myself. Uh, and actually, from this builder come funeral director came a real partnership. I built in Nairn, again for William Lowe. I built in a place called Dingwolf, William Lowe. Uh, and on Tom Nahurik Street in, in uh, Inverness itself, a major store for William Lowe, which became Tesco. Then we had all sorts together Tullocks. I, taught, I was teaching David about real estate, about property. So we did joint ventures for 15 years or more. We then set up Tullock Homes Scotland, which was the housing side, as a joint venture, to take Tullocks down to Central Belt, Scotland, because it was a busy hotel in Central Belt. Why was, it, why was it getting so busy? Because it had become known there in property. People, you could actually say what I'm saying to your good self and what we were building or had built. And we grew like Topsy. And, the, and people, were you very close to communities and, and, and cities and, and the people and was your reputation growing because you were delivering you weren't just um, maybe maybe delivery was easier but back then I don't I don't, don't know um, but it was easier mm. um, you know you could go and talk to the local authority you could go and sort of lodge planning applications for a few bob not for tens of thousands of mm. pounds and you could gain consent easier and I got people you know I had a I've had an office either in uh, Edinburgh or Glasgow, tracing that back to 1970s, oblique 1980. So, you know, I've got people around me as well. Um, and uh, we just became so well known that at one time, I'd say we weren't the biggest developer by any means in terms of size and scale, what we're doing. But in terms of number of projects, well, by golly, I can take you around Scotland. <laughs> Not sure I want to show you them all now, because you know, it's a long time ago, but... We did it, no question, we did it. Yeah. That in turn was at the, uh, the, I talk about the William Lowe ones, the only point of, uh, of the bank, their Bank of Scotland, was funding what was a pre-sold or a pre-lease scheme. Um, that in turn brought me close to the bank and it was really with the bank that I moved further south into the north of England and then ultimately here in the south as well because of the bank's activities and because in recessionary times, they turned to me to say, what can we do? 
and I, I ended up being sort of a an unpaid consultant, you know, the real true business friendship. And they brought me in. Sometimes it's because they got a client and a customer where they were fighting and I was put in between to sort of trying to sort out what's best for the bank, but also what's sensible for the customer. So I didn't get involved in sort of buying anything. Mm. It was one just of being uh, a diplomat and talking for the benefit of the bank, but talking so the customer could accept and, and solving a problem. Other times it was one of seeing some of the bank's problems and working out how we can mitigate the problem of a loss or a deflation of, uh, oh, sorry, an increase in the debt. And we came up in due course in recessionary periods with certain ways because of this guy the bank trusted that worked so well for the bank. Let, let's stick with recessions for now. And I know tech, I oh know, sorry. It's all right. I know technically we're not in one now, but it feels recessionary, doesn't it? And the, and the market is definitely uh, not buoyant, is it? Can you can you talk us through some of the um, some of the lessons I suppose you've learned from th- three recessions, four? Well, I should think four. Yeah, four yeah. that that you've worked worked through, and I guess you know you're just talking about working with the bank. How you how you get close to banks to do that? The kind of conversations you need to have. Some of the some of the things maybe that you've you've got right by reading recessions, well, maybe some of the things that haven't gone quite so well. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first first recession is really when I was going it alone, when uh, principally because of the oil prices in Saudi, uh, you know, they were going to sort of ration petrol. You couldn't drive it beyond 60 miles an hour. <laughs> Um, lights off at nine o'clock. All, some of these things were sort of mooted but never actually occurred. Um, I was probably too young to be affected. I was probably too small to be overheard. I was u- using my 10 grand in a, in a diplomatic way. <laughs> um, on f- the recessions of um, the early 90s was a, a, a tricky one. Oh, sorry, going back to the mid 70s, let's not forget, we then had interest rates or interest borrowing probably. Uh, a rate of over 10% hmm. and a margin on top which took it to 14 and 15 Oof. not for long when I look back and that's where sometimes I think yeah it was as high as that but it didn't last forever it became sort of more acceptable because if I was doing appraisals back in the 70s and 80s I'd normally use a 10% uh, uh, figure for my assessment of what the money would cost uh, cost me to build the hmm. development uh, so 10% was always sort of a norm in my mind. If you were lo- lower than that, you were lucky. So um, one cope with recession like that. When the 90s one was one again for, for myself through fortune, through working with the bank so much where some of these guys that uh, at British Linen Bank had moved to Bank of Scotland, ultimately uh, um, w- one of the guys became treasurer, Gavin Marston, wonderful guy. Gavin lives in Dunfermline still. And you make you you built a very firm business friendship. Friendship, yes, but business friendship, that was what mattered to both the mm. bank and myself. So in times of recession, I actually was doing so well in helping the bank, buying from some of their problem clients the property at prices to suit the bank, but also at the same time procuring from the bank a facility to 
do something else that we were working on. So it was sort of marrying a bad acquisition at a higher price than you want with a bigger lump of money hmm. to do a, a super scheme that made a lot for you and therefore compensated. And it's a, it was a tried and tested way we dealt with so, so many issues for probably 15 years. And were you able to to think in that, that way, one, because of that relationship, but two, did you have a sort of longer-term view of of returns or, 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 or maybe returns didn't ma- matter as, as much? No, th- look, things happen, don't they? And yeah. the acceleration in the size of our business and uh, again, in perspective, you know, um, whilst we I did a lot of small deals orig- in the, the earlier earlier days, we're doing bigger ones. And you know, if you go to Edinburgh, you'll go to Prince's Exchange there, which is one of the award-winning projects in in uh, Edinburgh, where Bank of Scotland had half of it, and two uh, two big legal practices had the other half. And we sold it to Crown Estates. We had a Prince's Exchange down in in uh, in Leeds, same award-winning. Uh, leased to DLA or whatever they were called in those days and partly leased to Regis and sold on at some great yield. Mm. Uh, So we'd become a a developer certainly in Scotland and the north that you could sort of match not with British lands of this world and land securities but we were a good developer. I'd got good teams working with me in Scotland and in the north of England not so much in the south and some of these schemes I refer to happened and were sort of devised in recessionary times. Mm. And some of that is about being sensible on timing and worrying about tomorrow, but not worrying about next year. You know, in other words, from tomorrow until next year, sort out what you want to build, go through the technicalities that are all pre-development activities, including the commercial side, to get a feel. Then normally, I mean, what goes up does come down. Yeah. And if I've been talking to my colleagues at, at, at the moment, because we are adapting to this dreadful, dreadful environment, it was one of sort of saying, you know, the keystone to success is the ability to adapt to change. Mm-hmm. And I never lost that. When you've got these problems, don't believe you shouldn't adapt. Just think what you need to adapt to. Now, at the moment, uh, we a group are fortunate we're not laden with that we have some wonderful projects uh, ongoing but stoppable because you know anything that's had to be built has been built and we, it's not we don't, we don't we don't just sit and wait what do we do in the interim until the government sorts out the mess they've made for us all and that really is offering our services to other people mm. like banks financiers generally equity investors if you've got problems come to us don't go with the greatest respect to your agency fraternity who may have a division go to people who actually understand because they've owned buildings they've developed buildings from digging the holes in the ground so to speak we did that before and I built uh, the Teesland side of the Scarborough group because again we we bought Teesland back in the early 90s when Martin Cohen had had died a couple of years earlier Um, made it into a management services company that uh, again, because I'd learned a lot about business, business that we listed on the stock exchange in 2002. When I listed it, it was valued at 20 million. I ended up having to buy it back to do a big deal I did in selling part of the group to Australia. 
in 2007 at 200 million. We'd got a reputation, we got a name, got bloody good people who could get on with it themselves. Um, and this close affiliation with the bank, I'd be on, I'd be sort of talking to the bank or meeting key people at the bank every week. Not difficult, but you know, either some of the key people at the bank came down to London, so it was it was easy for me then. Mm. How listing and delisting, selling and and buying companies, knowing when to do that. Two thousand and seven is pretty good timing, wasn't it, to sell <laughs> to sell to to Valad? How do you? How have you made those dis- decisions? Look, I often get it wrong, and so let me just stress that. Uh, the, the tale went really with, with Teesland. I'd listed Teesland. I'd not listed Teesland for fun. It was to actually grow it into as big a company as I thought was sensible. That did mean at the time we'd got a lot of people working for a family-owned company, which does give you sleepless nights because mm. you have a responsibility that you weren't really expecting but you'd achieved it because you couldn't stop peddling quickly. Um, when I'd listed Teesland, where do I take it? Well, actually, I'd got a top-class uh, chief exec in Teesland, a lady I'm seeing this afternoon for a, a coffee, and an argument maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was well-shaped. We'd got offices in Edinburgh, in London, in the Midlands, in, in Leeds, et al. Um, but what could I do with it? I'd listed it. I could raise money. I'd got people who did want to invest. Um, coincidentally, um, there was another company that was offering management services, not quite like our own, because ours stretched to development, project management, straightforward property management, asset management, fund management. I bought a small fund management company. Another similar company was called Property Fund Management, who were listed on the stock exchange as well. It's a catchy name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mm, yeah. Boring name, isn't it? <laughs> And that was run by a guy called John Sims. God bless him, he died about mm, seven or eight years ago now. But I knew John not that well, but quite well, you know, enough to sort of have, have a beer with him every sort of uh, uh, few weeks. John only owned about 10% of uh, the property fund management. They were listed. Their magic touch, they got a, um, a platform of offices in Europe. Mm. Just very briefly, I'd developed in, in Antwerp before an office scheme at and say went well, it was difficult to sell. Uh, I'd learnt a wee bit about development in Europe through Teesland, not through listening and looking at paperwork rather than being on the ground. So I'd always got an inkling. And uh, it was also at a time where um, the uh, Eurostar was being planned, so popping across, so to speak. Um, so property fund management were also listed. John was at uh, an age probably the same age as me, but he, he didn't want to be the boss. He quite liked the idea of the merger, and he knew some of the colleagues who worked for me as well. Um, so the, the logic was merger. He didn't carry the clout from merger. Two other uh, well-known city um, entrepreneurs in property, good people, I may say, um, they ho- held the key. I couldn't negotiate a deal with them. No arguments, but, you know, it was really saying, well, how desperate do I need it? So I actually talked to my friends at the bank, said, look, I want to get hold of this property fund management. It's got a platform of offices, 10 offices in virtually all the big nations of uh, of Europe. Um, can you help me? So I got a facility off the bank and did a dawn raid. 
and bought 15% of uh, <laughs> property from management overnight. So all of a sudden, they can't avoid having to deal with this cuckoo who'd got a big stake. And that ended up being a merger then. We bought out um, property fund management, became Teasland, IOG we called it. That gave me this wonderful platform as officers. And that was occurred in 2004. Now what do you do when you've even got bigger? What do you do when you've just taken it over? How do you make it really tick? Because of this association with the bank, this trusted association that had worked so well and continued to do so, the bank thought it was great what McCabe was doing. How can we work together? We've worked together in the UK where you've ended up buying portfolio of properties and we've done it in a joint venture. What about doing something the same in, uh, in uh, Europe? So we formed Scarborough Continental Partners Limited, 50-50, the bank and ourselves. Why? Well, I got all the people to go and look for the properties, whether they're in stock, whether in Sweden, where we've got a, a small office, in uh, Denmark, where we've got a big office, in Paris, in Germany, three offices in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. It was ready-made. I've got all the people to, to source it. I've got all the people to help put it for funds out with the bank money if we needed funds. I was buying like Topsy. It worked so well, it worked too quickly because the market was bloody stupid. And that's what I realised. You know, we couldn't stop buying hmm. because people wanted to, but I knew we were buying on a market that was the curve going up. I knew it wouldn't last because I had witnessed it before as a young man, probably on two real occasions and one we blip. So by the time I'd been having it for two years, Scarborough Continental Partners, it had grown so big. We'd bought, we'd sold, we'd negotiated with people like Mercedes but to buy some of their uh, um, uh, uh, production areas on sale and leasebacks um, from, obviously, uh, in their case, Germany. We bought the biggest, the biggest uh, office property in Copenhagen, which was called a big house, very novel. Um, and it was I was forever traveling around you know t to Europe to do it. I went out and lived in Belgium for uh, nigh on eight years you know after the crash mm. um, but I knew at the time like, this is crazy. It was then where the other side of dealing in property, so many people were following so many people were sort of semi copying what I'd been up to. Some of those people were international coming from other countries partly in the Far East, Singapore, for example, and, oddly enough, the Aussies. Now, I'd been to Australia to watch cricket because cricket's my favourite sport. So I, when I say I know Australia well, I know the cricket grounds <laughs> well and a few boozers. <laughs> um, but you know, the Aussies were, were in town. And um, probably one of the first I met was a guy called John Roberts, who was the boss of Multiplex. Very nice bloke. Multiplex really suffered immensely when they built Wembley Stadium here and used to stay at the Dorchester. So I saw him there for a few times for a beer. And we, we talk, uh, as you do when, you, when you're when you over a beer, you can talk anything, but you talk a wee bit about property and, and what's, what's life like in Australia. He virtually lived in the UK then. Um, and from talking to Multiplex, they were saying, well, wouldn't mind buying into what you've created in Europe. That made me think, well, if it's Multiplex, so principally to me a builder rather than an investor in property, what about others? So it's like a, an unwitting 
um, beauty parade of three or four Australian companies, not all of whom I met. I mean, there was Macquarie Goodman in those days mm. looking to buy. There was Stockland, uh, which was run then by uh, a guy from the UK, from I think it was from Nottingham, can't remember his name now. Um, and one or two others. Um, so the, there was the, the Aussie charge, there was the sort of Far East charge, particularly two organisations from Singapore and one partly from Malaysia. And so an unwitting beauty parade made me sort of uh, not deal with any of these big names, but deal with a, a smaller company called Valad, who... Um, were doing would would had bought a property in France, a one-off, to try and get involved in the European business, mm. uh, because they had heard of McCabe was talking to Multiplex or whoever, they came to see me. That I may say coincided with a test match against Australia, <laughs> so you know the the money we got clobbered I may say, but. The sort of atmosphere was right to talk Turkey. Uh, Valad were a small, effectively a REIT listed on the uh, the Aussie exchange, uh, but had very good support from Australian investors. You know, again, I, forgive me, I've forgotten the name of the investors, but the big institutions invested in them, and it was the time when the story was right. Why don't we? Why don't we, being Valad, try and buy out uh, uh, part of McCabe's empire? Mm particularly the European one, and then negotiations, which I enjoyed. Then to achieve it, on the Teesland PLC side, I had to delist it, and I had to therefore pay 200 million to delist it, make it private, to actually move into the deal I'd then agreed with Valad. Um, that was probably took me from a six-month deal, which with the size of the transaction to me was a big one. Yeah. And that the timing was perfect. Now, don't, don't, I'm not. Don't consider me as a guru. May I say, I knew the price. That it was too crazy a market. So, what so did you use though? If it, if you feel that craziness, because it's quite easy to get caught up in the hey, this is a lot of fun buying properties, growing growing the business. What was the? There must have been a little voice or something that said this is too crazy. Uh, let me say it was myself chasing to do the deal by this time and effectively a family owned company of this group so, you know, Teaslin was obviously outside shelled as well but we still controlled it uh, employing probably about 450 people ultimately depending upon the, the old geezer so <laughs> to speak and those were things that were in my mind look you've, you've done so much you've achieved so much here but hang on where do you go to next? And hang on, you know, we've got the facility still to buy more, but should we buy more? Because, you know, this market goes up and down. Um, and it was those sort of, uh, those sort of uh, issues that really made me think, no, I should try and get a deal done with Valad and sell, because mm. the market is too hot and I'm employing so many people. So that's really the roots of why I did the deal worked out perfect for the bank because they got all their debt, let me say this in a nice sense, all their debt was repaid. Mm. The fact is they then loaned to the Valad, you know, but it was, it was, a, it was a very well-crafted deal. Yeah. yeah. 
So and, cli- and I learned a lot about corporate life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and still, uh, still learning. I, I, I take it. Still got energy. Still got energy. So that's clearly a a, a highlight that could have, if you'd waited a little long longer, could have been a a low light of the career. I, I suppose if you'd if you'd over ex- over expanded. Not could have, would have, would have, because the one thing that. Uh, you know, I look back as an innocent. One thing I'd, I'd never uh, thought would happen, and you know, I'd been building big projects in the UK, so I got used to being little into this sort of biggish, but not big, big. Mm. I never for one moment thought that banks could go bankrupt. Real banks, you know, we're not talking about secondary banks. That sh- made me shudder to think that my own bank, Bank of Scotland, who then were H Boss. You know, merging yeah. with the Halifax could go belly up. Yeah, I'd, and I look back and think you must have been naive, McCabe. But that's what happened, and the the crash was really, principally, all about the big banks, the American banks, the UK banks, going belly up that caused chaos. And you say that's that was sort of two thousand eight. The cracks were there, back end of two thousand seven. It all happened in two thousand eight, and I reckon for. Us, you know, Scarborough as a northern, because I still own the likes of Thorpe Park at Leeds. Mm. It took from 2008 until probably 2014 for the market to begin again. Forget London, London's a different game. So that was a long, difficult period where literally big assets like Thorpe Park were static. And and how how do you manage that when you've got you know, big assets, the market has just fall, fallen away, fallen away. How do you sit comfortably or uncomfortably um, with with that as as a business owner, as someone being responsible for 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 a lot of lot of people? Do you does that cause sleepless nights or? Are well, I go back to the adapting to change. Yeah. You accept circumstances weren't as they were. Mm. Uh, it's no good sort of moaning and groaning. How are you going to survive? Because you know, real estate, to be in real estate is always big, big bucks, isn't it? It's yeah. not. We're not talking about building kitchen extensions. These are big projects. And in the case of, and this is exactly where we are today, um, we've got the good fortune, firstly, of not being over uh, uh, borrowed, so to speak. We've got the f- good fortune of developing and owning land and or property in the big towns and cities of the north of England, plus uh, part in Scotland, that we understand. So uh, the in-between bit is obviously still um, working on all of those projects. No no intention of building anything that's too speculative. Over the piece, we've also been successful in residential development, not house building, but apartments. So we're able to sort of... uh, be in the right city, particularly in Manchester, oblique Salford, to see um, properties that are successful, of, of properties that are successful for either owner-occupation uh, purchases or for BTR oblique PRS schemes. And uh, we have those now. I mean, if you go to our scheme in Manchester, it's a great scheme. Mm. We've got a second territory in Manchester next door that this year, sorry, this, yes, 2024 will be a year of going through all the pre-development uh, um, I- issues, activities, change of consent in some shape or form, 
to get ready to hopefully build in 2025 or it might take later. Mm. And just thinking about you know more more recent um, issues that we've been through Brexit one COVID the the big one and and now you know feeling everything from those few days of trust in in power and all of, all of that how focused have you been as a leader and as a business on I guess keep keeping going did you ever down tools when when times got got hard particularly COVID when Every, everyone seemed to down tools. Have you always been focused on? We just need to get this get this done. I don't think we've ever down tools. No, um, I mean it. It has and it is a worry. I think we've been blessed, wrongly blessed, by a very poor government. You know, too many prime ministers and chancellors. Um, who and Brexit. Yeah, it's still a Brexit's still an issue. You can still be queuing for hours and hours to get across the channel, can't you? Mm. So delivery of goods. Uh, yes, the construction side of doing projects now takes longer. Uh, the lockdown or restrictions on building sites, where uh, in Manchester, for example, the lift that takes uh, workmen from the ground floor to the roof that could take 30 workmen can only take three. So, you, th <laughs> you know, when you put it in perspective, there's so many issues that's cropped up because of the COVID, because of Brexit at the same time. Um, that the contractors have been the ones that have probably taken too big a, a beating, not the developers. We've maybe suffered through time taking longer, but you, you know, I feel sorry for the contractors. It's been a tough call. Yeah. Um, and whilst we seem to have got rid of the COVID problem, we've not got rid of the problem problem, which is the government making poor decisions. Government still not giving incentives to businesses to get back on the road. Um, manufacturing and building is so important to the UK, it's the obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we need investment to, to keep, on keep on building. And we it's need jobs, isn't entrepreneurs it? and jobs, yes. Yeah, it's, it's jobs, uh, jobs in on, on the building site um, in particular, with subbies and suppliers. And it's jobs for people who go into the buildings that you've put up, whether it's offices or, uh, or residential. Yeah, um, we only have about fifteen minutes left, ten minutes left, um, which I'm sad about because it's a really great conversation. Um, I want to um, pick your brains on, I guess, maybe the the three biggest highlights of your career, and then one or two failures that have actually taught you the best lessons in business or property. Both. Yeah. I think um, both are important. I think the highlight, of course, is, is um, and where, where I've ended up being a bit different, um, is, is the character. Firstly, um, what do I, what's my best way of ex expressing it? I'll up sticks. If there's a challenge, I'll up sticks. Mm -hmm. I moved up to Scotland when I was young, recently married. My wife had to go up to Scotland. Didn't end up not living in, in Scotland for very long, but up sticks and moved to Stockton-on-Tees, not the most desirable place on God's earth. And when I took this challenge to build big, I up sticks and went to live in Belgium. Now, who else would do that? Yeah. Uh, so those challenges are ones that I've, I look back and think, not many guys would have actually taken this challenge on. 
And I succeeded with those challenges because of what I ended up selling to, to Australia. And it worked. Mm. And so I'd say that's probably the, 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 the highlight. The, the, the low light, is that the right word? Yeah. Um, it is now. The low lights have really come around sport and football and litigation mm. where I think the the system of the uh, of the UK is a bit is is somewhat flawed. And the low lights I'd also say, and it's not based upon uh, sort of legal practice in London, I may say there's some good people we deal with. In fact I've got dinner with one of them tonight. But dealing with some of the legal people, um, I've got to say have been has been very poor. That they've cost us an awful lot through their poor performance. And this this is yeah. Sheffield um football yeah. club. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. a cricket club, strangely, if you love <laughs> cricket more than football. But. Yeah. Hey, cricket's my favourite sport, believe me. I mean, football, because I was b born alongside Bramall Lane, which is Sheffield United's home, lest you forget, because you have, it was also Yorkshire County Cricket Club's home. So when I was a nipper, it was a three-sided ground. Yorkshire would play the cricket mainly at Sheffield rather than Headingley. So I'd you know, nip off the tram, trams in those days, and pop over the turnstile and watch cricket free. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> um, so while we've been talking, I've been, as I often do, scribbling scribbling down. There are a few things that I think, and there are many things, but the few things that I've, I've picked up that, I, that re I've really enjoyed about your story is, you know, starting right at the the beginning and your loyalty that you had to your your mentor and actually that creating an amazing opportunity for you and the the importance of um loyalty trust and and respect um uh knowing what you want and and going for it that seems to be uh, a theme um and upping sticks and uh, and going yeah. there and you know sort of getting your hands dirty and really understanding um, the business that you're built building starting on that um, construction construction site yeah. I wonder if you could share with listeners you know if we're um, you know we're in the present present day there might be people who have only ever experienced free money an easy ish life I know there's been perma crisis um, for for the gen um, Zedders uh, um, what would be your top tips, I suppose, for anyone who is sat here, sat in real estate today thinking, ooh, where, where's the world going to go and how do I navigate it? Well, I, mean, I suppose my sort of uh, attitude at the moment, most certainly, because it is trying times, you just get on with it. Don't moan and groan. Don't waste your days sort of thinking you can't do anything. You can Use your own abilities, um, and, and as a group of uh, of people, as, as a you know head boss still should retire, I may say, <laughs> and inspire your colleagues. Inspire your, your colleagues not to to worry about the situation because we're all aware of the, the problems, particularly for our real estate industry. Get on with it. Let's have some humour around our offices. Let's have a laugh and a joke. Let's enjoy sport. Let's moan about how bad Man United are because I've no sympathy whatsoever for Man United. <laughs> And literally just get on with it. And I suppose that's maybe um, my theme for my colleagues. We're going to come through it. We're going to come through it a better club. Sorry, a better company. We are adjusting. We are going to do different things in 2024 and beyond. And by the time then the market returns, we'll be a bigger company again. Because we won't fail. Hmm. So always understanding that 
it is cyclical. Yeah, and it means at times with, with some of my senior colleagues, I have to use the word no. <laughs> yeah? In other words, what we've got to do, every pound is a prisoner. We are going through a rock and roll period. We can't value our real estate in a proper way because the market's like a jelly. Accept it because we ain't going to change it quick sharp. Hmm. It will change. It may take time. And it may come for reasons, an upturn may come for reasons that we can't yet fathom. Might be international money. I don't know. So don't don't stress the small stuff. Control the controllables. Control the controllables and adapt. And you'll probably read on what how we'll be adapting a few days or a few weeks hence. Oh, in the EG, I hope. Most definitely. Fantastic, Kevin. This has been such a pleasure to talk to talk to you thank you so much i know we probably could have made this i don't know a four-hour podcast and had a really good chin wag uh hopefully your tea's not gone too cold um but thank you for for joining us sam you made a wonderful yorkshire brew and if you don't mind i'm going to call you a lass fantastic that's the highlight of my career (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much (laughs) so there you have it lesson number one at the school of hard knocks completed I hope that you've enjoyed the learnings as much as I have. Kevin's tale is inspirational and just reminds us to work hard, to work respectfully, and to try not to always take things too seriously. That's definitely a lesson I can take on board. But school is not out just yet. Coming up on the next episode of The School of Hard Knocks is a woman who almost gave up on her 18-year-old self's ambition of becoming a CEO of PLC. She'd already had a brilliant career, done some amazing things, big deals, major projects. But like Kevin says, sometimes you've just got to go for it. And sometimes, says Harvard CEO, the drug that is property is just too hard to resist. You know, I look at this sector and it's a sector that, I, you know, I once described it's like property heroin. It's like, you know, it's like a love drug, actually. So because you you realise that We're there not, are so um, many... suggesting that people should take heroin. No, I'm not, no. But it's, it's like you realise there are so many things you can do. There are so many things you can be. Join us next time as the phenomenal Linda Schiller takes up her professorship in the School of Hard Knocks. <laughs>